We're just entering a phase where the first commercial batteries with dramatically different chemistries are coming on the market. And we're entering chapter two, where there's this dramatic shift uh, in the kind of materials that people are gonna be using and, and are just getting commercialized today. We now have line of sight into what feels incremental and a bit wonky, but would actually be a truly revolutionary shift in batteries. It is a big deal. I'm Shail Khan, and this is The Interchange. Picture this, a battery, a lithium ion battery, in fact, that costs less than half of what it costs today, can charge a vehicle in 10 to 15 minutes, can run for 10 or more years with heavy daily usage, lasts over a million miles in an electric vehicle, and is produced with abundant raw materials found all over the world. None of those things are true of today's lithium-ion batteries. But our guest this week, Gene Berdyshevsky, is confident that it's all coming by 2030, more or less, and that the next decade is going to usher in a new wave of innovation in energy storage like we haven't seen in the past 30 years or so that we've been using lithium-ion batteries. Gene should know. He's probably among the most likely people to make it happen. Gene has a long history in the world of batteries. He was employee number seven at Tesla long ago, uh, but now is better known, rightly so, as the co-founder and CEO of Sela Nanotechnologies, which is one of the more high-flying energy storage startups. I guess you can call it a startup, even though they've been around for almost a decade, as we discussed. Uh, working on, in their case, silicon anode technology for batteries, which is one of the potential components of this revolution in, in energy storage technology. Don't worry, you will know what that means soon enough. Gene is a friend of mine, and I can also honestly say he's the smartest person I know about batteries. Uh, I do know a lot of smart battery people, but Gene is the one that I trust more than pretty much anybody else. Gene is also the proud owner of two amazing Portuguese water dogs, but that's a story for another day. In the meantime, here's my conversation with Gene. Gene, welcome. Thanks for having me, Shale. It has taken altogether too long to bring you on this podcast. Well, I'm glad I'm here now. As am I. Um, all right, so we're going to talk about a bunch of battery-related stuff, but let's start just at the highest level. We're it feels like we're somewhere in the midst of a multi-decade-long period of innovation around batteries. Why don't you orient us? Like, where are we in the life cycle of lithium-ion innovation? Yeah, good, good question. I think we're really at the beginning of chapter two, is what I would say. And I think we can characterize chapter one as as really perfecting the original lithium-ion battery. So, just to to take a quick step through the history books. Um, Lithium-ion technology was really invented in the 80s. It was first commercialized by Sony in 1991. And the chemistry that Sony commercialized in 91 is actually the same chemistry that's in your laptop and that's in, in our phones today. It was a, it was a chemistry that used uh, a graphite-based anode material, to, which stores lithium when the battery is charged, and a metal oxide cathode material, which is what stores lithium when the battery is discharged. And those materials were really refined and perfected for, at this point, 30 years. And what's in your phone is the exact same chemistry, but really well refined. And we're just entering a phase 
where the first commercial batteries with different chemistries are coming, uh, or, or with dramatically different chemistries are coming on the market. There's lots of little varieties of different cathodes that are being used today, but they're all like small variants. And we're entering chapter two, where there's this dramatic shift uh, in the kind of materials that people are going to be using and, and are just getting commercialized today. All right. So we'll talk about what that chapter two actually entails and all the exciting stuff that's happening. But let's jump ahead then for a second to the end of chapter two, or I don't know, the end of the the end of the final chapter. Like what is what is the end state for lithium ion batteries? What does that look like and what does it actually enable that we can't do today? So I think the end state for energy storage broadly is to replace all of the chemical bonds that are storing energy today in fossil fuels with chemical bonds of batteries. You need that storage. The best way you can think about fossil fuels really single-use batteries. And if you really want to recharge them, take a couple hundred million years and recharge them underground. Um, but when, you know, that, that energy that's stored in those chemical bonds, we, we can store the same energy in a, in a battery, whether lithium ion or otherwise. And because a battery can, can store that energy a thousand times or 10,000 times, um, you know, you can use a lot less batteries, which is why it's so much more environmentally friendly. You can, you can charge and discharge them, whereas a fossil fuel, you just get to discharge once. And so I think we're talking, you know, let's say 2050. And most fossil fuel, uh, most energy that had been stored in fossil fuels before it was released and used to do whatever we wanted to do, drive around, fly, uh, create electricity, will be, will be stored and released from batteries of some sort. Almost entirely, I think, lithium ion of some nature. But, but that's, that's, that's part of, the, part of the, what's going to happen in chapter two, and we'll see. And so what are the key things that are stopping us from doing that today? Like, what, you know, there's obviously a bunch of different specs that any given battery has, lifetime, costs, charge and discharge rate, range, et cetera, et cetera. Like, what are the ones that you think about that you're like, well, if we could unlock these four or whatever the number is, that gets us to replacing all chemical bonds and fossil fuels with batteries? It's, I think it's really just one and then a long, you know, long white space before you get to number two. Um, and that one is cost on a dollar per kilowatt hour basis. And the reason is, I think it's just one, is if you look at vehicles today, let's say, that use lithium-ion batteries, they, they travel plenty far, 400 miles on a charge. Um, and what you really need to do is just make that accessible to, uh, to, to, it needs to be low cost enough that every class of vehicles can use it. And so that, you know, just reducing the dollar per kilowatt hour cost of lithium ion batteries can transform all ground transportation to electric, no doubt. Um, now it's, that's a tall order. It's, you have to cut the cost in half and it's already at a pretty amazing place, a little over a hundred dollars per kilowatt hour. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, if you want to transform flight, you, you really have to look at, you know, weight-based energy density. So gravimetric energy density, how much, how much energy you store in a given kilo of, of, of batteries. But, but I think for grid and for transportation, uh, ground transportation, which is the vast majority of where fossil fuels are used, um, you're really talking about dollars per kilowatt hour. And it's all about how do you get that dollars per kilowatt hour down? What about things like uh, lifetime degradation and also like charge and discharge rate? I mean, for, for ground transportation, those things seem important, maybe not quite at the same level as, as CapEx, but somewhere up there. Yeah, it turns out everything in batteries is a fundamental trade-off. And you can already make a battery today that charges and discharges once every day for 10 years. You know, that's roughly kind of, um, 
uh, what is that, 3,000 cycles. In 30 years for grid, you know, 10,000 cycles. You can do that today. The problem is the design decisions you make in, in making that battery result in a higher dollar per kilowatt hour cost. So if you did that, it'd be about twice as expensive as the lithium ion battery that's in, in, a, in a modern uh, electric car. You know, you double the cost. So again, it comes back to cost. And, and the more you can bring down the cost of that energy storage, the more you can make those design decisions and design trade-offs to get yourself more cycle life or to get yourself faster charge. Um, so it, it, it ultimately, it's a question of, can, you can do those things today just at a higher cost. So it keeps coming back to how do you reduce the cost? How do you reduce the cost? It strikes me that and the way you're describing it, it, there's like currently a zero sum game where you can choose to optimize for one thing in a design decision that might get you longer lifetime or faster charging or something like that, that will then necessarily come at the expense of, of cost. Um, it strikes me that there would be two theoretically, two ways to solve that. One is drive down the cost so that you can afford to spend more basically by making those design decisions. And two is break the link between those two things. That that's right, and and there's actually there's sort of an even more fundamental thing that you trade this off with, and that's energy density. So uh, you know you, you can try to break the link, but the link will the link is hard to break because it's it's just a question of how the battery is built. And just to give you a very simple kind of um, maybe a, a, a example, in a battery there are, there are layers of anode and cathode material. In your phone, there's about thirty layers of these pairs, and if you make each layer a little thinner uh, in in how much material you use in each layer, um, you get faster charge and discharge. But if you make each layer a little thinner, now you need 45 layers, let's say, for your phone. It can charge and discharge quicker, but when you have 45 layers, uh, you have more operations in assembling that battery. You have you have to stack 45 things together instead of 30, so it drives the cost up. You also have more of the inactive layers, copper, aluminum, separator, those tend to cost a little more. So again, it drives the cost up. So if you, if, if let's say you reduce the, the cost of the active materials, there's still going to be this trade-off between do you build a battery with 30 thicker layers or 45 thinner layers? And so that link, it, it's not, it's hard to fundamentally decouple that link. It, it just exists because the way the battery is constructed. So what you can do and what we do uh, in particular is we focus on how much energy do you store in that battery. So every time you assemble those 30 layers, if you could store twice as much energy, well, it doesn't cost you that much more to assemble it. Um, but now storing twice as much energy, you really reduce the, 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 the cost on a dollar per kilowatt hour basis. The, you know, the, the, best, the number that really matters isn't cost per se, it's cost per kilowatt hour. And so the simplest thing you can do or the best thing you could do in our view is increase the kilowatt hour stored in every battery without increasing the dollar. So if you, you know, if you increase the denominator without increasing the numerator, that's the way to drive it down. You could say we're doing it through performance, we're increasing energy density, but, but really the, 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 we're doing it um, because we're not changing the fundamental cost structure while increasing the amount of energy stored. Yeah, so that's a good segue into talking about what are the things that are going to get us to this vaunted vision of way lower capex that allows us to make these design decisions. So we'll start maybe with the, the CELA approach, uh, and you can pitch your own book for a minute, but then I also want to talk about what else you think is exciting in addition to um, in addition to your solution that like is going to complement it and get us to the to the promised land but let's start with give the sort of layman's description of of what you're doing yeah so so let's maybe 
take take a step back again to that 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 first chapter right we've perfected how the the initial chemistry has has developed um this graphite anode metal oxide cathode uh chemistry that's in today's lithium ion battery and and we've now built uh, over well over a hundred billion dollars of batteries uh, produced every year today in the exact same architecture of these these layers of anode and cathode material stacked or, or wound up, and so what what we do is we uh, use that same assembly process in terms of um, uh, cell assembly, but we replace the anode material, which is a graphite powder, with a silicon based uh, anode material, and um, and by doing so, batteries made with our material in assembled in an identical way today will store at least 25 more 20 percent more energy. And over time, as we improve our technology, we can get to about a 50 percent more energy stored in the exact same cell assembled in the exact same factories. So our our technology really is just a different ingredient um, that goes into the exact same factories. You can think of it going into the gigafactory, and the batteries coming out the back end of the gigafactory store more energy. Uh, uh, each and so, the the major benefits of that is you don't have to invest in any more infrastructure. You know, there's there's 285 gigawatt hours of production capacity right now. We're building out, uh, not we, but but the the world is building out about 2,000 gigawatt hours of production capacity over the next five years or so. And probably closer to twenty or thirty thousand gigawatt hours of production capacity, you know, in ten to twenty years. And so we're talking about a hundred x increase in lithium ion battery production, and our technology is compatible with all of that. Um, so that's what we do. There's there's sort of other ways to approach it. We call that advanced lithium ion. So if you want to think about everything today is conventional lithium ion, moving the chemistry from graphite to silicon, uh, you know, you move into the realm of advanced lithium ion. And then there are other alternative architectures altogether that we can talk about, whether it's sort of solid state or some other chemistries. Um, you know, that we think of those as kind of alternative architectures, and those have their own pros and cons. Before we talk about alternative architectures, alternatives to the silicon anode approach that you guys are pursuing, what, what are complementary solutions? Like you, you're going to, you know, a silicon anode rolled out at scale, you get a 25 to eventually 50% increase in, in amount of energy stored per battery, which is a corresponding decrease in capital cost. Um, as you've said before, we need to get further than that. So what else can you do? That's right. So, so you know, in this category of advanced lithium ion, which which I think of kind of the things that are compatible with existing infrastructure, um, but are fundamentally different chemistries, you can look at the cathode side. So, so silicon anode is on the anode side. Again, that's the side of that's the half the battery that stores lithium when the battery is charged. You can look at making the, the the cathode side more efficient. And there are two classes of of there are two categories of cathodes. There's uh, sulfur-based and 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 fluoride-based cathodes, and they are both more efficient at storing um, lithium than than oxides. But they they are incredibly difficult to make um, reversible, to make them cycle without huge degradation very quickly. So, folks are working on that. We have some projects uh, in in those areas. Very very early stage. Uh, that problem is going to be. You know, it's at least five years out from from commercial products, but that is entirely compatible with what we do. So, if someone comes up with a better cathode that's thirty percent better, 
And we have our silicon anode, and that's 40% better, let's say, in, in, in five years. You get to multiply those advantages together. You get to, to do 1.4 times 1.3 equals you know, a much higher number. So they're non-competing technologies. And, and that's really the biggest one. The cathode is, is, is the biggest one uh, after the silicon anode. Then there's the separator itself. So that's the other component that that lives in the in that separates the anode and the cathode uh, material to keep them from short circuiting. And today, that material is a is a um, polyethylene or polypropylene film. It's a it's a plastic film that's basically fifty percent holes for the lithium to move across, and fifty percent plastic so that things don't short circuit. And what you can do is replace that with better materials as well. Um, there are, there are ways you can go about increasing the amount of open space to, let's say, 80 or 90% without short-circuiting the, the anode and the cathode. And that would allow, for example, for faster charge. You could also think about thinning it out. Uh, the thinner it is, the, the, the more energy, the more room there is for energy storing materials. So that's another complementary technology. Um, and then the last one is just continued innovation in the chemistry of the liquid electrolyte. There's some amazing work happening in that front, and that'll allow us to get longer and longer stability. So getting, you know, a battery that used to cycle a thousand times uh, before end of life out to five thousand times before end of life, and so there there are ways you can improve it. And all of those things are multiplicative. All of those things are fully compatible with downstream lithium-ion manufacturing processes, and so we're very very bullish on this whole category because of its ability to integrate downstream. And so your view is you combine a bunch of those things together and that drives you down to the $50 a kilowatt hour range, which is where you think we need to be to like fully scale lithium ion to its promised land. That's right. I think between those four pieces, the, the advanced anode, advanced cathode, better separator, and better liquid electrolyte, you can get to a $50 per kilowatt hour lithium ion battery that has 10,000 cycle usage, 30-year usage, and gives you a, a fast charging of, you know, call it 15 minutes uh, to, to 80%, which is pretty typical for all the, the, the vehicle, um, for all the automotive lithium-ion battery requirements that going forward from kind of 2025 on, that's not really, it's not really a new thing that's going to be in every car by, by 25 or 26, we think. All right, so let's spend one minute on alternative pathways. I don't want to talk about all of them, but you know, one that has um, garnered particular attention this year with the uh, success in the public markets post SPAC of QuantumScape in particular is solid state. I know you're a solid state skeptic, uh, both out of your true belief and also because it's an alternative pathway to to silicon anode. But give me give me your quick take on first of all, I guess describe solid state for those who are not familiar and why it is kind of tantalizing and then uh, tell me why you don't think it's going to work. Yeah, so let's let's split this a little bit first. Let's let's split some hairs. Um, solid state uh, is oftentimes a misnomer. So people say, "Oh, that's a solid state battery." What what folks who work on solid state typically mean is they they want to use a lithium metal anode instead of a graphite or or a silicon anode. And one of the ways to enable a lithium metal anode is by introducing a solid electrolyte. And I'll talk about why in a second. Um, but you can actually have solid state with silicon anodes. You can have solid state with you know, conventional materials. Um, and you can have lithium metal 
without solid state. It's just the two things have become synonymous, lithium metal anodes and solid state, um, because one sort of enables the other, but that doesn't have to be the case. So I'll, I'll come back to some interesting ideas um, uh, around that in a minute. But what, so what, what, what would typically folks mean when they say solid state, they mean lithium metal anodes as a substitute for graphite anodes that exist today and as an alternative to silicon anodes, which is what we work on. Um, and, and so what a lithium metal anode, uh, lets you do is, is, you know, it's, it's actually, um, it can pack in theory, um, extreme lithium, the lithium ions that store energy, they can pack them extremely densely. In actuality, um, silicon materials can actually store lithium ions closer together than pure lithium metal that's because they sort of pull them tighter than lithium metal normally wants to be in, in lithium metal. So at, a, at an absolute theoretical level, silicon is actually better, but you can sort of plate, you know, thick sheets of lithium uh, metal in the anode. And that's a pretty effective way uh, to store the lithium when the battery's charged. The problem is when you do that, uh, lithium metal really likes to poke holes in that, that plastic film separator that lives between the anode and the cathode. And as it pokes those holes, the battery short circuits, it goes into a thermal runaway, fancy name for fire, uh, and you have yourself a really big problem. And this tends to happen towards the end of life. And, and so, you know, having your car spontaneously catch fire in the garage because it's full of lithium metal, um, it's really not, not, a, not a good outcome. So folks are putting in these ceramics or there's some non-ceramic um, separators that prevent the lithium metal from poking through. The problem is, you know, it, and this has been something folks have worked on for 40 years or so. The lithium metal batteries actually predate lithium ion batteries commercially, but they caught fire, were recalled, and sort of never saw the light of day for 30 years after that. Um, and, uh, and it's because lithium metal is so insanely good at poking holes in anything. You basically need an atomic level defect-free surface. You have to have no boundaries, no grain boundaries, no imperfections, no pinholes. Otherwise, lithium metal is going to poke through, force its way to the cathode, and short-circuit things. And so uh, it, it's a tantalizingly hard problem. And until you see it, until you sort of get through all the integration challenges, it's not, you know, you're not really there. It's really easy, not easy, but it's, you know, people make a lot of progress academically on this stuff, but it's really hard to get something that never ever uh, pierces through short circuits and goes into thermal runaway in the lithium, lithium, uh, lithium metal, aka solid state um, battery. So, so that's what they're doing now. If you could achieve that, you can achieve energy densities that are, you know, just like energy densities you can achieve with silicon anodes. Um, so that's, that's what's so tantalizing is if you can get that 50% improvement in energy density, you can drop the cost by, by, you know, by a third of, 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 um, uh, of, the, of, of storage. Um, uh, but the challenge is with solid state is you have to build the battery very differently. No one in no factory in the world deals with a, with a ultra thin, fragile ceramic separator today. Um, it's not, it's not compatible with actually how most lithium ion batteries are built, which is winding. It's only compatible with stacking, um, 
the ceramics themselves can be expensive to make, very hard to manufacture. And again, you have to get to defect-free levels over just huge surface areas. A car has, you know, well over 100 square meters of surface area of this material you'd have to create defect-free. And, you know, if you have 50% yield, if you have one pinhole every every square meter, well, you're just never going to get to 100 square meters of defect-free material for one car. You're just going to have to, you're going to have to throw a lot of this stuff out. So it has a lot of challenges that are like semiconductor manufacturing challenges. And so the, the manufacturing environments get to be pretty expensive. Um, so, you know, we'll see. I, I mean, I, I think the benefits are very similar to advanced lithium-ion, um, which is great. And if, if it can be achieved and it can be commercialized, you know, I, I think it'll be fantastic. It, it's not a, it's not a, um, the market needs all the lithium ion battery production it can handle. So even if both our technology and those technologies work, I don't think we're going to be competing in the market for, for probably 10, 15 years because the expansion of the market is just so big right now. I want to take a step back for a second. Um, innovating from a technical standpoint in the lithium ion battery world, or actually the battery world more generally, is notoriously difficult. It mm-hmm. takes a long time. You've been at it 10 years, something like that, back to the original going on, academic Going research. on year 10, yep. Yeah, year 10, QuantumScape is similar. A bunch of, you know, a, a, any company that's like approaching some fundamental breakthrough seems to take something approaching that amount of time. It takes hundreds of millions of dollars. You've raised hundreds of millions of dollars. Many of these other companies have as well. What is it fundamentally about batteries that makes like breakthrough innovation so difficult, time-consuming, and expensive? So, Shale, I've thought about this more recently <laughs> as I've come on this 10-year 10 10 year anniversary, and I was thinking to myself of, man, I, I really thought this was going to be a lot easier. Did um, you? What did you think did. when you when you founded Sila? Like, where did you think you would be by this point? I mean, besides on a beach. So I, I actually... I, um, you know, we, we thought it would take about five years to get here. I just I just pulled up our Series A deck the other day. Um, and actually, you know, 10 years ago, I was explaining why alternatives to lithium-ion like lithium-air weren't going to work, that we're getting hundreds of millions of dollars of investment in, in huge upside. So it was interesting to, to see that. Uh, I had to explain away why nickel-metal hydride supercapacitors and lithium-air weren't the future. Um, but, but, you know, I thought it was going to take five years or so. And it, it sort of dawned on me um, why this is so difficult. So consider, let's consider your phone for a second. In your phone, there are two moving parts. One is the buttons on your phone, and the other is the battery. And what I mean by that is in every other device in your phone, the display, the microchip, um, all, the, all, all the circuitry, only electrons and, and photons move around, right? Only light and electrons, and all of them are massless. In the lithium-ion battery, one out of 13 atoms gets up and out of its place once a day and moves about 100 microns to the other side of the battery. And that physical dislocation, that movement of, of atoms, not electrons, not photons, but atoms with mass, causes massive damage back and forth, back and forth at an at a, at a atomic level. And what you're trying to do is make a material that can withstand that atomic change in and day in and day out 
uh, you know, for for a decade. I mean, it's kind of an insanely hard problem. It's a it's a it's a moving part that also has electrochemistry that also has, you know, electric uh, electrical properties that also has all these other properties, and so I think that's where it comes down to is the fact that these these chemical transformations are are physical, not sort of just electronic in nature. Uh, or, or photonic in nature, and and so that that leads to 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 a whole world of problems, and and it and it requires extraordinarily multidisciplinary approaches to solve. And this is, I think, why we've only had four commercially relevant rechargeable battery chemistries in the history of mankind. Uh, that's it. You know, it's lead acid, nickel cadmium, nickel metal hydride, and conventional lithium ion. So we're you know we're at the dawn of a fifth. Um, but but that that's that's my takeaway. I don't know if that's uh if that's too nerdy of a of a view on it, but but that's what I came to after ten years of of uh, working on it. Whatever gets you up in the morning for year eleven, <laughs> I think, is a perfectly fine answer. Um, let's talk about who dominates this space today. I mean, as you alluded to, we or I think you mentioned this. We have a few. Uh, we, we have a couple hundred gigafactories, or we will soon have a couple hundred gigafactories. Um, it's a market that is, you know, the, the manufacturing of, of standard lithium ion batteries right now. Um, it seems to be the, the, the supplier landscape is proliferating, but it's really dominated by a few pretty large players, sort of historically, like the LG Chem and Panasonic. They're basically all, with the exception of, of Tesla, Asian companies. Some big Chinese companies have come up more recently, like CATL. Um, you know, is this a market where those incumbents will continue to dominate forever and they will adopt manufacturing improvements and new processes like yours and others? Um, or is there room for, you know, an insurgent leader to arrive? Like, what, how much benefit do you get from scale? You get a lot of benefit from scale. Um, there's a couple of reasons. So I think the short answer is, the leaders will continue to be leaders and we'll have a couple more leaders, but not that many. And and the reason for that is there's 30 years of know-how that these companies have built up when they could afford to make mistakes, when they could afford to have small recalls. Um, you know, this was sort of, you could, you could come in, make a couple of mistakes, learn and still survive. Today, to enter this space, you can't have any mistakes. There is no margin for error at the at the cost and and price points that lithium ion is at today, and you you need the the know how. I mean, I you know, so the big players are you know, there's really only seven or eight, I would say, and and that's including the new guys. You have LG, you have Panasonic, you have Samsung, you have SK, which is fairly new, um, and you know that. Um, they they and LG obviously have have uh, um, some trade secret spats that that just went on, and we can we can talk about that more broadly. Um, and then beyond that, you have CATL, which was really built out of ATL, which is the world's biggest uh, producer of of batteries for consumer devices. And then I then at that point, you're starting to get to new entrants. Northvolt, I think, is very credible. Tesla is credible. Uh, you know, Ferrisys is credible. And one of the key, one of the reasons you're not going to get a dozen new players is the limiting ingredient is people and know-how. And so Northvolt, you know, went out and recruited um, some of the best talent from from Japan, Korea, China, um, before anyone else was starting the same endeavor. And this was really critical, you know, when I 
when in our my early days at Tesla, one of the reasons Tesla got such a big lead was we could recruit kind of monopolize the talent that was interested to come into the space. And so there's very limited amount of lithium-ion battery space and everyone kind of coming in and saying, oh, we're going to build this too, I think is going to have a very, very hard time achieving the quality and cost structure. And, and so I think that the, the big players will continue to dominate. Okay, so let's say um, let's say that we do everything that you've described so far. Let's say that a, a series of innovations and scale-up in manufacturing leads the incumbent manufacturers plus a small number of additional ones to drive down costs to the to you know approaching $50 a kilowatt hour and then that further scales the market to you know totally electrified transportation and a whole bunch of other sectors as well what are the knock on concerns we should be thinking about i'm thinking in particular about things like um metals right like we we have issues around cobalt and nickel. We have to worry about things like safety. Like, what are the if, if this is really the dawn of a new age of lithium ion? Like, what are what are the worries we should have? I, I mean, I think one of the one of the things we think about is hey, we're trying to replace something that's unsustainable and dirty. Let's not replace it with something that, in the long run, is also unsustainable and dirty. You know, yes, at a smaller scale for every you know for every. Um, for every kilowatt hour of, of batteries we make, we can displace you know ten thousand kilowatt hours of fossil fuels. But let's let's do it right. So I think we should be thinking about from day one of how do we make technologies that are uh, made with um, you know from from energy sources that are environmentally friendly. We should be thinking about the CO two footprint of of the the batteries we're making. Um, I I think when it comes to metals, to to your point. Um, you know, I think cobalt. The cobalt shortages are are manageable. Uh, they're they're relatively temporary. I think the world's going to move to to almost in, entirely nickel for for the for the cathode. Um, you know, nickel is scarce, but only to the extent that you know we we it, it's a very high upfront cost to invest in a new nickel nickel mine, and so a lot of folks are waiting to see that the demand is going to be there before making those investments. But it's investable, and longer term, there's opportunities to replace even nickel with copper and iron, which are obviously you know just dramatically more abundant and and really kind of the the markets for other things for copper and iron are so much bigger that that this would become kind of a complete non-issue. Um, so I think that's that that part's manageable you know there there's certainly a question of um where you know making sure that the batteries are produced around the world uh and not just concentrated in a couple of countries and I actually think that question um you have kind of natural economics that'll help there. Batteries are extremely heavy and very hard to transport you you can't air freight them because they're dangerous, not that you'd want to because they're so heavy and and cars are produced on nearly every continent and what we're going to see is batteries produced right near where cars are produced because of the the, the value add nature of the, the the battery and and the cost of transporting it so i think we're going to get to a much more natural distribution of of battery production than we did with let's say solar and then than we did with than we had with fossil fuels you know you can do the math but if you yeah you know, I, I did this maybe a year ago a solar cell is worth even at 20 cents a watt is worth something like 170 bucks per kilo, like per kilo of, of solar cell, because yeah. it's so dang right, light, right. right? So you can just put that on a plane and fly it across the country wherever you want for a couple bucks, right? But a um, you know a lithium-ion battery, eat to, even today, is maybe worth 
25 bucks a kilo. And I think the world we're going to, it might be even less than that. So you really can't afford to add $2 per kilo to this thing to transport it across a continent. So just thinking about value on a kilo basis, you can see why solar cells can be produced in entirely different places um, and shipped wherever they're needed, whereas lithium-ion batteries will be produced, lo- quote-unquote, locally, right? Uh, I mean, so so I worry less about that. Um, you know, I, I think recycling, people, I'm glad to see people already thinking about recycling today well before it's an issue. Um, you know, most of these batteries aren't going to come offline for 10 years. So so I think that's good. But even better would be just extend the longevity of batteries to 30 years. I mean, you can take your take your vehicle battery out after 10, scrap and recycle the steel in your vehicle while reassembling the, the cells into a new pack for a car that, that you buy tomorrow. That'd be the ultimate goal. So I, I, I think... I don't see a huge number of issues that aren't either solvable or can be solved through through innovation as we move to a world of uh, of of energy storage uh, through 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 batteries rather than fossil fuels. All right, last topic, uh, which is not specific to energy storage, but your experience building a company in this world. So you've been, as we d- discussed, you've been at it close to ten years now. Um, building a deep tech company in the energy and the climate world. Uh, you've also now raised, what, a circa a billion dollars or so in private capital to do so uh, over a long time, as you said, that has sort of extended beyond your initial expectations. So you've seen this like whole cycle around uh, the availability of capital for this kind of thing basically play out uh, via SELA. And I wonder, first of all, how you've like, how much that environment has changed over the period that you've been building the company. And then also just, (laughs) if you're speculating, like if you were starting SELA today in the environment that we're in now, how different do you think your, the, the outcome, the timeline, the experience would be like, how much does the, the modern environment with such hype around climate tech and um, interest in deep tech companies because of things like SPACs. Like, how much does that actually change the the ability of a company to execute? Yeah, you're giving me flashbacks to to fundraisers from Series A, B, and C, which were absolutely brutal. Um, you know, a couple of thoughts. One, you know, we so we to your point, we have raised uh, now over 925 million. We've, uh, we spent a tiny, tiny fraction of that. We haven't, I don't think we've even gone to, I don't think we've even spent hundreds of millions yet. Um, and, and part of that is because of the environment that we started in where capital was extremely scarce. This is so new and so different right now. Really, I would say 2020 is the year, the turning point. Um, even before the SPACs sort of capital started becoming, um, more available. And, um, you know, and, and, and so I think that's, that's overall, that's good for the world. Um, when I think about the company building process, I, I actually think we're very fortunate that we started when we did. Um, one of the things with the kinds of problems I like and the kinds of problem we decided to tackle is it's a scientific problem. And scientific problems do not lend themselves easily to more um, to more capital, to more people trying to solve it more in more parallel paths. Scientific problems are, are oftentimes constrained by one insight that's blocking whatever 10 ideas that you have that you're trying. And so trying 10 ideas or trying two ideas, it doesn't actually change your time to insight, right? And so a lot of our insights, if we had tried 
more parallel paths, we wouldn't have gotten to them sooner. As a matter of fact, we probably would have gotten to them later because your management attention is now distracted. And in our case, management actually knows a thing or two. My co-founder is a you know, professor of material science. He's one of the most brilliant minds and batteries today. And, and so you know, the fact that we were forced to concentrate and focus on this one piece of the problem and on, on using whatever little resources we had to solve this, this, this one problem, we got to insights faster. So in some ways, I don't know how we would behave if we were super early stage in this environment. I think it's easy to see companies raising too much, trying to go too fast at things that are where the whole speed is, is, a, is a scientific insight and not you know, just more putting more capital to work. Um, now, we've, our company's gotten to a place where we can put this capital to work. So we're, we're, you know, we announced that we're building a 100 gigawatt hour scale facility uh, in North America to produce our material. That's going to require hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Ultimately, we will have to deploy tens of billions of dollars to produce sufficient production for all of the electric cars uh, in the world to use our technology. And, and so I'm glad the market's here now. It wouldn't have helped us back then. Um, but the environment's changed a lot. I, I, you know, I, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs. I try to help them, give them some pointers here and there on, on how to fundraise. And I, and I tell them all, you know, I'm, don't, I don't know if you want my advice. I'm an expert on getting no's. You know, I did 50 pitches for the Series A for, for a yes, 50 for the B, 50 for the C, you know, all to get basically like three or four yeses. And it's a very, uh, very different environment now where, you know, fo- folks, do one or two pitches, get a get a financing, and I think it can kind of lead to um, people being not as careful with the, the capital. Gene Berdyshevsky is the CEO and co-founder of Sila Nanotechnologies. Uh, Gene, thank you so much for joining, finally. Thanks for having me, Michelle. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Audio. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our senior producer is Daniel Waldorf. And our music is by Echo Finch. We'd like to give special thanks this week to Gene's dogs, Angstrom and Lumen, and my dog, Primo, for not barking during today's recording, an extraordinary feat of restraint. How'd we do today? Did you like the conversation? Uh, Shower us with praise, send us your scathing criticism, pitch us show ideas, anything you'd like. Find us on Twitter at at Interchange Show or at PostscriptAudio at gmail.com. And if you can give us a rating or share it with a friend, it helps other people learn about the show. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. Interchange.